1: Hi my Tanakwe, Free FM, eighty-nine point zero, independent community media. Hello, all. How are you on this Sunday afternoon? Not a nice day outside, bit cold, but um, cloudy. We could be in for the rain later in the day. We've got interesting points of views throughout the day,
0: and time to bring in my co-host and mate. Good afternoon, sir. How are we? Oh, well, we're all coping still, but hoping that there might be an announcements in the coming week oh, that might yeah. change things for some of our listeners. One of whom is today Jimmy Baisley, almost jolted into enterprise by the financial woes of a company he once worked for more than a decade ago to discover the joys and challenges in partnership with his son of becoming his own boss. Carrying on the same trade that once employed him, Jimmy sees business restore profitability over the years. He directs business from his city office while living in a Northland rural setting. Now, this commuting between home and office is easy on the soul, according to the season, seeing spring lambs and frosts in the Dome Valley come and go. Auckland just keeps on going and growing, and growing is good for his company specializing in excavators but its biggest crisis is just as feverish building activity is pushing the demand for earth moving equipment COVID-19 that must have come as a bit of a shock to you Jimmy yes
2: it did. it's certainly certainly something quite different hmm
0: and so the company is trading in excavators, a specialty of yours. What's the company?
2: The company, HPL Distribution Limited. It, uh, we have um, the uh, dealership for New Zealand from 8 ton to 50 ton. And uh, these machines all come out of Japan, uh, a city called Ota, Japan. And um, we're there. Um, dealer network here and we have um, also we have other people throughout the country um, dealers to assist us and, um, in distributing the machines and servicing them.
0: That Cato company has been going a long time.
2: The manufacturers. Yes, Cato is, I think, uh, yes, is, um, I think uh, when you look on their um, history, they're back. they start back in 1895 and they um they' still a personal company uh, mr Cato's still the director of it have uh, the um and obviously they had obviously cha- i think originally they made trains and tractors and things and then their their biggest their biggest advert or their 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 proudest thing is cranes yep. Cato cranes are very popular worldwide and um obviously the excavators and they do make some other specialty equipment, not much, but uh, they're still a family company that just uh, stick to that um, manufacturing of basically the cranes and the excavators. As you know, you can't get a Cato drill or a toaster or a sewing machine or anything like that, like some of the other big companies.
1: Jimmy, uh, not, for, just, not Jimmy, not far from here is a crane. I don't know who's a Cato crane, but uh, at night I can see its three red lights flashing in the in the <laughs> darkness. Um, yep. City cranes, hydraulic truck trains, rough terrain cranes—they're going all—they're o- going up all over Hamilton right at this moment because there's a lot of building going on, and it's interesting to see how they bring them in and then take them out again.
2: Yes, the uh, the cranes actually—we we only sell the excavator um, side of the business, um, as I say, eight to eight to fifty ton. The cranes are actually sold through a firm in Wellington. Titans are the are the agent for the cranes. And the potato cha- the people. They they were originally had it and they've had it for a long time.
0: The changing skyline is a key to an industry like yours that is based on, well, before the cranes comes the excavation, doesn't it? One of the first stages of a building site.
2: Oh yes, definitely. You have to prepare the site and. That is becoming more complex as the years go by. There's, you know, they have to have um, everything has to have what they call a geotech report, and um, to make sure they pass all the um, regulations and new rules um, that that are uh, put on the, you know, put out there to to satisfy the council. Yeah, the demand yes. on all that. So yes, that um, the uh, excavators are certainly one of the first on the site for sure. I,
1: I'm looking at some of the Kato products, and all, uh, all all I see is the colour yellow. Are they all yellow?
2: Yes, they are all yellow. All but they have actually brought out another company. Mr. Cato brought out uh, another company for on their excavator side, was well, called IHI, and because they have the uh, we have the eight to. Fifty ton, They have brought out IHI, which have they have eight tonne and down to about one and a half tonne. And so the IHI were a green turquoise colour, and so there'll be a few of them of that colour, but they are slowly changing everything over to the Cato colour and upgrading the machine. Yeah, as, I've, as I've, as go.
1: I've got the Cato Works company flashing on my uh, pad here, and uh, yeah, I've, I've just just got to have a look because... They remind me of the cartoon Transformers. <laughs> Some of the products.
2: Okay, no argument. <laughs> uh, they're
0: pretty expensive though. What sort of uh, figures are we talking in this f- sophisticated uh, execration?
1: Can we open our wallets this afternoon and buy one?
0: <laughs> no, it's
2: out of our range. <laughs> yes. uh, no, uh, the excavators really—you uh, know—you do. You need a reasonable amount of money. Uh, you know, they range from you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollars up to four hundred, maybe you know, to um, for the bigger machines. So, really, uh, if you buy a, the very—the most common one is twelve or fourteen ton machine, and we the, we put special buckets on them here, tilt buckets and things on them here. So. If we, uh, if you get that, it may be up to $200,000. Depends what the owner wants to put on it. Um, if, you know, quick hitches, tilt hitches, whatever. And so if uh, if you went down the road to buy a Toyota Prada or a Beamer SX5 or something, you find the price would be pretty similar.
0: And the advantage of a long-established company like Cato is the overall turnover is such that they can justify the the research and the um, they need big production in order to sell it at an affordable price. That's the advantage of dealing with such a company, no doubt.
2: Uh, yes, well, Cato, actually, on, on the world stage, Cato don't have a big supply of machines. They, uh, they're still, as I said, they're still a family company, mm-hmm. and uh, they're... Their production is not anywhere near some of the bigger companies out of China or whatever they, uh, they're, they're quite uh, low, but they they rely on quality and they're very they... proud of their machines and um, yes and they, they get we, we have a following of Cato people
0: and so when it comes to your part in this industry, it's to work with a company that treats people the only way they could survive for so long by being
2: fair? Yes, they are very, uh, the, the, dealing with the Japanese I find uh, really good. We have a good rapport with them. We're, we're, not, um, we're not corporate at all. So once again, we have a niche market of farmers and sort of um, smaller uh, contractor operators uh, that um, just want to deal with a smaller company and uh, the Japanese I think that's why they like us, uh, family, uh, myself and my son coming along as the next generation, that seems to be important to them and uh, that's why uh, we're we're still there and they have a a sort of like a handshake deal really, we've got one little placard to say that we're New Zealand distributor uh, for those machines and that's it, you know, if you deal with a company in New Zealand like we had a fencing company once, and if you built with fletchers, you had them an encyclopedia contract to put up a hundred metres of fence, but not the Japanese.
1: Jimmy, how's your Japan? J- J- Jimmy, how's your Japanese? Have you learned Japanese over the years? Uh,
2: <laughs> to be honest, what happens is you, 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 uh, yes, you do a big learning curve on the, on the learning the Japanese, and you lear- usually learn a lot when you go out with them. <laughs> and then when you come home it sort of it drifts away because you've got no one to talk to and and a few in the, gl- in the language and a few glasses of sake along the way yes I find the Japanese um, I'm from the Hokianga i am born in the Hokianga and um I find the Japanese very much like my Maori friends up there you know they um they you know you have a meeting you sit around a lot and it's hard to get a decision and and um and And then, when you go out, you know they they like drinking drinking, of course, as you say, and they like eating raw fish and they like smoking, and oh, I think my mates do uh, and um, and they are very honest and loyal, um, so yeah they um, there's a few similar similar points there, and, and I think, consequently, that's why we get on with them so well.
1: Just a short reminder.
3: <laughs>
1: a song which is called Sukiyaki, but doesn't have anything to do with that particular... <laughs> it's,
2: well... Yeah, no. They, uh, they, um, the uh, our, our overseas marketing manager actually went to school in uh, at Auckland Grammar, and consequently he's got a New Zealand flavour, if you know what I mean. And um, so he understands us very well. Lo- loves the rugby and and um, our, our sort of way our life. He wants to start a pie shop in Tokyo. Actually, you to buy a top pie over there. He says.
0: Mm. Well, for a hokianga boy, you've come a long way, Jimmy. A company trading successfully.
2: Um, yes, yes, we are. We we haven't been easy. It hasn't been easy. We've been through some turbulent times. Uh, and we we started off. We were franchisees uh, for Northland. You know, um, uh, the HPL was first. Um, the the main office was in Manchester Street, Hamilton, and uh, we had the we got the. Uh, we were offered the Northland agency, uh it came about that we, we as fencing contractors, as I mentioned before, we did a security fence for the people up here we didn't get paid. But we got hold of the head office people and they came up and saw us and said, Would you like to be the cato dealer? And I said, No. You know, I you know, you name it excavator, I've owned one, name a salesman, I know him, I don't want to do that. There's only a hundred and forty thousand people in Northland at that stage and who would, buy, who would buy an excavator off me? Mm. I said, if I was going to do anything, I'd want um, the Harbour Bridge North, you know, some people and money and effluent. And, uh, yeah. So they agreed to that, and uh, when I went to the Northland Field Days, I took five machines and sold them. Mm. In the first year, we sold 16 up here, mm. and for my grizzling and moaning and whinging at them, I only sold two into Auckland. The rest comes with the Kerry and... One great. Mm.
1: One thing that we've all had to learn, and I haven't been on it, and probably Mel hasn't been on it, is Zoom. So during this lockdown with COVID, have you, how many COVID um, meetings have you had to do with on Zoom? How many Zoom meetings have you done? Uh,
3: yes,
2: I, I have. I don't. I don't organise that. Of course, so the office. We organise that. Uh, um, yes, yeah, so we've had it. Mainly, uh, we have a, a, a law, law lawyers in Auckland that um, help us with various things, and, and also living in Northland, um, you know, if you need an and a lot of we have a lot of uh, um, business like in Wellsford but unfortunately, Wellsford's in the in the in the super city or what they call the yes. super city, I'm and it's, it's a nuisance. You know, it's, I, I can't yep. believe that Wellsford's actually in a lockdown. Even walk with you know it was the old Rodney Council. It, it's just there, and is, um, is, you, know, you 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 are a few minutes away from there, but you go you know you can. not
1: Is it is it why is it why, is it why all those people are escaping from Auckland, being found in places like Wanaka and Taupo?
2: Uh, the Wanaka, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I don't, I sympathise with those people a bit. Because you know that lockdown is severe, yep. and obviously, the um, the Wanaka people, I saw there was a bit of anti there that um, you know Wanaka, two people from Auckland, really um, up here. We must have ten or twelve thousand, yeah. maybe twenty thousand. I don't know Honey, Honey will tell you he counted them as a drove past. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, that, that'll be another that'll be another story. But seriously, are you going to be watching Jacinda Ardern and uh, Dr. Ashley Bloomfield at four o'clock tomorrow afternoon?
2: That's uh, most probably not. No, no, most probably not. I'll hear you know. You're here. You're busy. It's just I just no, I don't really. I I'll, you'll know soon enough. People <laughs> will tell you what's going on. You don't have to. You don't have to watch your TV. You know, night. You know, at four o'clock, I'll be busy. I might be in the back of somewhere, helping. You know, fixing a machine or, or getting something organised or someone or whatever. You know, the time's time's quite precious. Mm.
0: So it all depends really on what's going on with the virus when they brought down the lockdown at the level different from where you are living in Paparoa, that really changed things in business um, in a sense that you're separated from the base that you have in, in Auckland, the office there.
2: Yeah well we've separated obviously from what we have but we have a chap um, in, in Auckland that you know looks after our, our interests there and um, and obviously the excavators come into Auckland. We've got, I think we've got two on the wharf there now that, you know, we're trying to get off. There's, there's all these challenges uh, that you have to to um, to get through to, you know, access and parts. Of course, it's another another problem with uh, getting out of Auckland. But the the first lockdown we had, um, back, uh, it was uh, April last year. The sun was shining and all that. It was sort of a bit more. It was a bit quite novel. You know, it was different. You know, you sort of and learned how they lived in Romania or East Germany, you know oh, um,
1: those
2: I, countries when they were under that sort of you know control sort of thing, and the sort of it was a bit different. You know, you couldn't go for a swim in the Kuiper or things like that. It was quite quite um, quite different. Actually. The,
1: the, the line ups at the supermarket, masks on, two meters apart.
2: Correct. Right, yeah. Two meters apart. Mm,
1: yes. Yep. Yes. And and people. Yes, but, and, of course, here in Hamilton, uh, and when Lockdown lockdown 4, the latest one, came, I went to the supermarket that night, and people were taking out so many rolls of toilet paper.
2: Well, yes. I, in the first lockdown, and even this one, um, I never left. I, there's a little four-squared paper, So I went there. You know, we didn't go. We didn't have to. We didn't have to get a huge load of toilet paper yeah, You just went down and saw the saw the 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 Indian chap that's brought that now it was China was before that but he sold it and and um and so yeah, all you buy there and it, it's funny enough I think you actually save money because mm. um when you go to the supermarket it's really special, you know, take six of these for that much and this and the, you get a bit conned into it and you come out with a trolley load of stuff you don't need. So when you go to the fourth green paparazzi, because the price is sort of twice the supermarket thing, you, have to, you only just buy one that you need. Yeah. Um, g- just one of those. G- g- <laughs> so g- don't, I th-
1: I think don't, don't be better, crazy. I think we'd better be safe. Go back to the excavating. Uh, in, in your travels on your excavator or one of them, have you ever broken a water pipe? Yeah.
2: <coughs> Several. Uh, yeah, water pipes... Uh, with the excavation, one of our on our OSH um, form, our cheats is uh, is um, underground services, one of the things, and that 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 contains like you, you mentioned, water pipes, <laughs> there's computer cables, sewer pipes, power cables, a big one, that could be you know very dangerous, and gas lines. So you have to, and there are good services you ring and you get the people to check, but even though they've checked. They can be in the wrong place, and you can dig them up,
1: and then and then you get the bill for breaking them.
2: Not if um, we have we have been to court. Telecom, oh, the old telecom, taking us to court for uh, digging, but we had it we had it uh, checked, <laughs> and they checked it. So, and then the judge said, "Well, if you checked it, that's your problem." Yeah. But it, it can be quite severe, and it can yep. knock out communications yeah. and things like that, and they can't use you know the cards or. Yep. So it is. It's, it's got to be something you've got to yep. be really careful of, and uh, and we certainly do our best uh, to do that. But um, people will make mistakes. They put the, yep. they yep. mark the wrong place or whatever. Or yep. in that particular case, the chap marked an old cable.
1: Yeah, no, no I I just been reminded that my ha- one of my housemates he yesterday was planting kumara in a spot where previously another housemate had um dug up a water pipe. So. No, no problems yesterday with the kumara, so I hope it comes up in the future.
2: Okay, well, that's good. That's good. Now kumara's good for you too. Get planting it. Yeah, yeah, good. That's 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 good stuff to have. Mm.
0: Well, if we think, Jimmy, that the lockdown for COVID is bad enough, is there anything worse that we can imagine that could destroy our trade and?
2: Uh, I, I think. Internally, maybe. Uh, the, the, the trade, we, we, with the COVID, we've discovered that uh, COVID has sort of um, let us know that, you know, I thought the, the, the saviour of New Zealand, the economy, was tourism. But I don't think that's quite correct, because I think, you know, the Minister of Finance has been plodding along, and I, and, and uh, we, we seem to be doing very well compared to everyone else.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the
2: other thing was that COVID has is, uh, is, uh, pointed out that there's a lot of anti-farming, um, you know, people want all the cows gone and farmers and they're polluting the place and all sorts of things like that, but I think actually our farmers are one of the best in the world for from producing a handful of grass to a pound of butter to a to a, the burger patty, I think they're, they're, yep. they're, they're, the, they're yep. really on top of their game. Yeah, mm. our,
1: our GDP went up this week, so... Uh People, business, people, and business will be happy that um, we we are surviving. We, the crew of five million, is it or plus? But uh,
2: the team—they call it the team—but I don't, don't don't agree with that either. But as yeah, they say, I, the team.
1: But we're, we're we're doing better than places like Australia. We're doing better than uh, places in Europe, and uh, we're we're the envy of the world at the moment.
2: Well, oh, yes, I agree, and once again, it comes back to our well the the industry we're good at is our primary industry whether it's as I said, whether it's producing a liter of milk or an apple or a bottle of wine or something we're very good at it <laughs> and um I think we feed forty plus million people in the world
4: and that's so impressive
2: that's our, that's that's yeah, very impressive and um I don't think our primary people get enough accolades for it really well. Uh, they,
1: get, they yep. get knocked around more. Anything in, in the news? Well, mm. um, I, I grew up on a farm, so I'm still drinking milk. Um, Thirty or forty years on, still got a, some cheese in the fridge, some butter. No, I haven't got any butter in the fridge. I've given up ha- having that. It's too, too expensive. But uh, yeah, no, um, I'm, I, I'm a farm. I'm a farm boy from way back. So um
0: this COVID nineteen, Jimmy, is not the only devilish virus ready to have us reduced to well lockdowns there's the ever present risk of another virus that's feared by every farmer foot and mouth disease
2: ah uh, yes I, I i agree with that i uh, personally this that this covid virus doesn't worry me as much as that i i feel that um that if we have foot and mouth here um yep. It's one of the things, and I was actually when I was at um secondary school, I had it drummed into me by a chap called J- Johnny Stewart, JJ mm-hmm. J Stewart. He was actually an All Black coach, and he was our science teacher. Oh yeah, JJ uh, J- J, is it? JJ Stewart, J- yes. J- Stewart, yes. Yep. And um I remember we used to see movies, films on it, films on it, like, these big farms getting destroyed yep. and that, and he, and, I, and I think it's instilled in me. And if you had, I. I Personally, think foot and mouth would be much more serious to this country than the COVID. I know the COVID's under control with lockdown and things, but the thing we're good at, as I said, is our primary industry. And if, and if say in the White cattle, you had to destroy every dairy cow and every sheep and goat and whatever in that area, it's, boy, it is it's a devastation. I, I, I don't think we would recover. So and, we, d- and we would be broke. We would be broke. It doesn't bear thinking I about, think- does it? It doesn't bear thinking about. It's really I think it's really serious and cause maybe this this COVID's a good thing. It might step up our security on diseases. I know that COVID's more, you know, is carried by people, but the foot and the mouth will be brought here carried by people too, in something or on something or whatever. So maybe maybe this will um Up, up our border security on these on these things, and I know they do a very good job there. Well, they've done a very good job so far because I've kept it out. So the those people on their border jobs do obviously doing excellent. I
1: can tell you they're back in. I can tell you back in 1952, Scotland had a foot and mouth outbreak. It was imported imported from the continent. It breaks out in Aberdeenshire between April and August 1952. 19,000 animals were slaughtered at that time. So a devastated Scotland on a couple of couple of times too.
2: yes, and I think well England I know that um England had it because our local vet went over to help um chap Rosswood he went over to um to assist obviously to uh, get it under control, and obviously they have but uh economy wise if 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 you have it then people, even if we get it under control, I don't think you know our our sales of all that will be. Diminished greatly until we, you know, get it under control, and that could just that could just knock a big
1: hole in the economy. Shoot. Yep, and, and and another disease, of course, in Scotland in 1964 was typhoid, which uh, was imported from meat coming in from the continent. So you've got to keep oh. an eye, you've got to keep an eye on these all these little diseases.
2: Yes, that, that, that's right, all those, and um, you know with the COVID too, you, you got to remember our parents, they had all these things. Um, you know they had um, tuberculosis and and the polios and things and um right. they had there's no cures they had to at that time they had to live through these things and um i remember my parents telling me in in the little place in that Kianga, little village i get like six people dying a week you know like it's um if that happened in christchurch last week it'd be a real you know it'd be a huge lockdown and whatnot. But um, the, they, our, 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 parents and grandparents, they live with all this stuff and somehow got through it, you know.
0: Hydatids um, being another.
2: Yes, hydatids, that was it, they started doing all dogs, sheep, yeah, and, and they're, they're eradicating some of these, even brucellosis. Uh, don't but that's, that's, that was another one, in the milk, they, uh, in TB, TB tests, they still do your cattle. Uh, they test your cattle, you gotta, um, make sure they're right and, and to, to try and eliminate that um, disease
0: fully, yes. You mentioned, again, being in a boy in the Hokianga. Now, that uh, carries associations for Māori with kupe, siting land yes. off the Hokianga heads. And I'm wondering, the Baisleys, is that the line that your family has followed from Europe?
2: The which line, sorry?
0: Well, your surname, Baisley.
2: Daisley, yeah, Daisley, D-A-I-S-L-E-Y. Now, actually, the Daisley name came from, <coughs> excuse me, Irishmen from, um they were from India. They were in an uh, English regiment. And they came to Taranaki as soldiers in 1865, somewhere around here, in the, in the Maori Wars. And um, anyway, they decided that, yeah this wasn't a bad place to uh, stay so um, they obviously when all that was settled down they they decided to stay there and um, the Daisy name got to the Hokianga because um, they bought a shop up there and and that's there so one of the Taranaki people um, got to the Hokianga. Hmm.
0: The Hokianga was one of the very advanced uh, places of settlement for Europeans in New Zealand for a time, but seems to have become somewhat a backwater. How do you account for that,
2: Jimmy? Uh, politics. Uh, you know, the uh, I think there was a big <coughs> there was a big uh, rural urban migration. Uh, the the the, uh, the the rural areas were quite you know, strong, and you're right. Cooh Co I think had the largest sawmill in the southern hemisphere in the 1900s. And at one stage, it might have been bigger than won is now, so uh, not not now, but you know Wag at the time uh was you know the, as you say was a very, very busy place and uh then we had this rural urban spread. everyone went to auckland auckland was the big uh draw card manufacturing and and so that drew a lot of the families out of the area the The work in the north stopped farming became harder and so neighbours, brought up neighbors there was less families then there was forestry of course that started taking up more land that you know uh, families had to move on um, and so it's had a little bit of a revival with the, that forestry I'm talking about now that's been harvested so there's a lot of um a lot of that going on up there now, a lot of harvesting still a still a, a little bit of farming but uh, not as not as much as it, it um you know,
0: used to be. Putting pressure on the roading structure, and there's been a lot of talk, mostly by politicians, about a dozen one way bridges
2: up north. Yes, I think they had 10 or 11. Um, Winston Peter sort of brought it to the attention that uh, politically, Northland was a uh, sort of a, a true blue seat. In my time, there was sort of all blue uh, bar a chap called Vern Cracknell, who was social credit. Yes. A <laughs> and we had a chap, another chap, Murray Smith, who was a Labour chap, who took the one race. He was for uh, one term. And um, now it's uh, the, the the political scene has changed. It's all red. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite, quite a big turnaround. So hopefully the government will see that the people up here voted and we do get our share of the... Of that money to to do all those bridges yep. and and, yep. and continue the highway because the politicians do promise things and and they just don't happen.
1: And and of course, Winston promised to take the port of Auckland up up your way. Is that it's yes. is, is that still going to happen or not?
2: Uh, yeah, I think that originally the um, the the uh, under the national government they didn't want that port operating there. And then Winston, because he's a true Northland boy, he, he wanted it. And so I, I think they will. I, I It depends on what happens in Auckland, if they can still cope. But the, the Port of Auckland is, it is, once again, some you know, can be quite difficult. Uh, we go there a lot, as I say. We get our sure. Kato excavators off there, and you can pull off Gilly's Ave, and there's the of rur- rur- trucks along the waterfront and halfway up the hill. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's traffic-wise demanding. And I see a lot of containers now going from Northport to Auckland because they can't unload them in, in Auckland. There's obviously a, a backlog, and I think that's frustrating. I see some of the, the uh, businesses are frustrated they can't get their containers. Um, but
0: talking of containers, that's a, a big cargo to carry. It should really be on rail, not trucks.
2: I, I agree rail is you know would be the most efficient you know to, you know they can pull so many carriages compared to a truck. Uh, in that sense you know for the old carbon print, the rail would be the way to go. but unfortunately uh, at Northport there's no rail to it. and they talked about putting the rail in there back in 1979 it was the big first lot of there's going to be a rail track to to the refinery or to Northport. And, um, and they, they, it, it just hasn't happened. You know, every, every party's talked about it, but it just hasn't happened. So now with a container, you have to put it on a truck and you can either take it into, they take it into Wangarei to put on a train and then go to Auckland. But if you put the compass on Northport and swung it around, the truck would already be in Welford. He's already in the super city boundary. So. I think there must be a little bit of, you know, the cost. And the truck can go straight to the, um, to the, uh, client mm-hmm. to, to unload it. Whereas yeah. if you put it on rail, you have to take it, put it on the rail, and the rail takes it, say, to the, to the, uh, sideline and I don't know where to be in, um, South Auckland there, Manukau, whatever. Yep. The big sideline there, Oda And then they have to unload it and back onto a truck and back to where it's going. Well, Jimmy, we're so
1: well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today, mate. It's uh, we've uh, we've we've got to move on, but we'd lo- love to speak to you another day on uh, your stories around the north, and uh, because Mel's a northern boy, and one of our later guests is also a northern boy, so we'd lo- love to, s- to hear more stories. Well,
2: okay, all right. Well, yeah, no, no, thank you for having us, and you have a nice day down there in the Waikato, and uh, well, well and we I hope that um, the Auckland people are all let. Free next week, and, and yeah. um, so right. we're all in the level playing field. are well, really
1: good. I've, I've got the latest information from the Ministry of Health coming up, but uh, yes, just hold your breath a minute. I'll just
2: okay.
1: Cheers, thank cheers, you. Cheers, Jimmy. Bye bye. Thank you, Jimmy. See bye. Bye. bye bye. It's a pleasure. Okay, you better hear this 24 community cases of COVID 19 was uh, up from yesterday, it was about 20 number of new cases identified at the border, no new case at the border today, and they're all in Auckland. There is 1,033 uh, uh, cases, Six, uh, 671 of them whom have recovered, and in Wellington, of course, uh, all have recovered in Wellington. So, um, yeah, there's a... All this information there. So 24 new cases of COVID 19 in, and they're all in Auckland today. So everybody be watching t- uh, tomorrow around 4 o'clock. <coughs> independent, community media, Sukiyaki, Kayu Sakamoto. Um, In 2001, Scotland had another outbreak of foot and mouth. Um, It was a severe case uh, from England, affects many farms in Dumfries and Galloway, with many thousands of animals slaughtered and burned. We'll have a couple of anniversaries coming up
0: shortly, Mel, but uh, our next guest is... Angelina Nahina Greensill best known as daughter of Eva Rickard, perhaps, one who's been exploring the two cultures of which she's a part, Māori and Pākehā. Tanakwe
5: Angelina. Tēnā
0: It's uh, often that you've dealt with news media in the past and you continue to do so. It's really a different world from that on the marae. Could you just refresh our memories as to what actually happened to the marae on which your mother was a part?
5: In 1941, the government took the land, our land, under defense purposes, and instead of uh, putting an aerodrome at the far end away from the marae, they destroyed the whole village. And they put a runway right through the middle of the area where the marae stood and the papakainga and displaced a lot of people. They became homeless, basically. So a lot of them ended up going to Auckland and Frankton and having to become labourers for the first time, because they were a community that grew up on the land, living off the resources around them, like the river, the sea. Everything they needed was there, except perhaps flour and butter and the sort of things that were introduced. And, and of course, yeah, a, so, and of
1: course, yeah. this land later became the now infamous Raglan Golf Course.
5: That it did. It became the golf course, and of course. Um, Everything came to a head in 1978, February 1978, the 12th of February, 12 o'clock. Uh, there was a sacred service about to take place on the Urupa, the burial grounds. And the most, some of these esteemed talking from all around the country had traveled for this particular ceremony, uh, because there were issues with, um, drownings out of Raglan, uh, and the old people blamed, well, the, The tanifa was blamed for for causing all the drowning, so they'd come to pacify the elements and put the tapu back on the land. So they turned up there for the sacred service, and um, the police turned up as well and arrested um, 17 people from all over the country. Including your mother? uh, Including my mother. The only one from Raglan arrested was my mother. There must have been about 300 people there, two to 300 people. And um, it was interesting that by actually arresting all of the most prominent, probably activists at the time, People like Tamapuata, who was a filmmaker, you know, wrote this, script from Ngati. Uh, Rolly Habib, who was a, also a playwright. Um, you know, some really famous people in the Māori world were actually taken that day. Hannah Jackson, who supported Te Reo Māori and took the petition and was arrested up in Waitangi in the 1970s for that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those people were there that day, and uh, out of that arrest, I guess, that changed the whole focus to... They were arrested for trespass on the land, but because the land was at the time being discussed with the government, uh, it became a five-year battle and negotiations and court cases uh, until eventually the government gave the land back. So in 1983, we occupied our land. We didn't really get the title back until 1990. Um, it was offered in 83, but my mother refused to accept it because the condition was that we pay for it. Yep. And it was land that was freely taken, and she refused that. So by 1991, the Labor government came in and caught a re- which basically rang up and said, "Just pick up your title; you don't have to pay."
1: And, and of course, your mother at the time was the postmistress in Raglan.
5: Well, she was on; she was a counter clerk. She was actually at the; um, she had all her, you know, I guess she was acting postmistress sometimes, but uh, she was on the front desk, so she knew everyone in Raglan, and she was a very community-minded person. You know she'd she'd run concerts for the 161 battery in vietnam and she'd run just to fundraise and to um, you know uh, keep the attention on things that needed to be done we used to have to do concerts to fundraise and uh, she'd uh, walk from hamilton to raglan to raise money for saint john's and um, help to establish the surf club so very community focused at that time
1: your your late mother is now interred on the land she fought so well for
5: Yes, she is, because she also always believed that you need to be on your land to protect your land and to bury yourselves in your own land, <laughs> which is, of course, a Māori way of looking at the world. Where you're born is where you should go back to. It doesn't happen as much today because our people are, are scattered to the four winds, but there are still others that adhere to that principle. If you died in Hamilton, someone might take you all the way. I know there's a, a tangi today going all the way back to Tōmaranui, so people still take people home to where they've come from.
0: Mm-hmm. mm that's a long-standing tradition, and yes, it's the uh, mixing, the melting, or the confrontation of cultures that sometimes produces some significant political events. For instance, mm. Te Matikiti o I think, rose out of the initiative of another well-known woman in New Zealand. Yes.
5: Yeah, that's right. Um, and again, that was the, I think at the time, Māori were really concerned that, you know, once upon a time, we had 66 million acres of land. And suddenly it was down to about three, three million. And we had a growing population. And so there's real concern that one day there would be no land. And if you have no land, how can you be tangata whenua? So there's a whole lot of debate and discussions going on pre the, the land march. And then, of course, in 1974, 75, um, Cooper, you know, was the person chosen to lead the land march from one end of the country to the other to take this memorandum down to the government petition and uh and out of that of course came a lot of people actually went home to their own lands following that land march was a good it was a place where awareness um, and education happened as people traveled they learned about each other's issues and my mother, Sana Murray from up north, she was doing a lot of work up there. My mother went home, she's in Ragland. Betty Walk Betty Williams from um Hoduki team, she was a school teacher. They were all on the land march. Yeah. Tama Poata. Um, and so they all carried on raising awareness, I guess, of of the loss of land and how the land had disappeared and and from that of course shortly after that the Waitangi tribunal was born. Mat Machirutta introduced a law. I don't think they wanted massive protests happening every year so i think it was sort of to pacify everybody we'll give you a place where you can take your grievances and we'll listen to you and we'll make recommendations to the government as to how to deal with it and that's basically (laughs) what the process is today
1: it was a very interesting time in, in that period because i don't know if you've been watching the um the black panthers television show the dramatization on a sunday night um, which prominently features Muldoon ordering all these people to be sent back to their islands. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a bit of a drama, but I've been watching it seriously. You, you've got to. But did a lot of that really happen?
5: Oh, of course it did. Yeah, it did. And, of course, we were down here probably protected from it in Raglan. You know, we don't – There were, I can't think of any – well, there was. There was a couple of Nui Islanders that lived in Raglan that were friends of ours, and so – Everything happened mainly in Auckland. Mm-hmm. I think that's where most of the... I, I mean, it may have happened elsewhere, but Auckland was a place that I knew a lot of the people that were arrested up there. Um, at the time, young people who um, just stood up there and stood up against and yep. had the courage to stand up for their people's rights.
1: Did, did, Eva, did Eva ever have any co with uh, the late Sir Robert Muldoon?
5: Oh, yes. <laughs> he wanted her to give up her job in Raglan. they give her a job in the post office in Wellington, and, um, you know, to move just to try and sort of, I guess, get rid of all of the land, uh, take her out of the district. Uh, and he was the one who said, if you take your court case out of the, um, the high court, then we can talk, we can negotiate. So, um, he was there in the background. Uh-huh. Uh, we had a, a gentleman called Gibby Gibson, who was the air command at the time who took the aerodrome. And he, were, he basically said that when, um, the golf course issue was happening, he was called into Molden's office. And basically told Change's story, and because he was an honourable man, he refused. Uh, He said, no, I promise them they land back. You know, it's it's now 1970-something, this was in the 1930s. You know, prior to even taking the land, he had conversations with Māori. And at the time, they were looking for an aerodrome, not so much for the war, but they were looking for an aerodrome for planes that, you know, the postal service had suddenly become airborne. And so these little planes were going up and down the country, and there was nowhere to land between New Plymouth and Auckland, so planes were landing on the beach at Raglan. And I think that was the impetus for trying to find a landing strip in Raglan. just so happened that our land was sort of sitting there, um, and so that was the one that was taken later during the war under the Public Works Act for defence.
1: Well, we have to agree that both Japanese and German U-boats were seen in our waters, so mm. that they were—they were—they were preparing for any eventuality.
5: Mm, yep, and they sort of—we still have the pillboxes on our land. That they, these great big concrete structures that they had where they could put their guns, and if they had to shoot them coming through the harbour, not that it eventuated, but they certainly were prepared for that.
0: Mm. Is it by chance that women might emerge at the head of protest movements? Thinking of Dame Fina Cooper, of your late mother, Eva
5: Rickard? I think, I think women have always had a key role in Māori society because, you know, Papa Tūnuku is Mother Earth, you know, the whenua, and women are the nurturers and also, you know, care for both the family and the land. And so they were really important people. Um, if there was a war between whānau or between tribes, sometimes they'd marry a daughter off to the, the invading tribe and that would create peace. So there was a whole lot of um, leadership roles that Māori women had in the past. And then over the years with, you know, colonization, the coming of the British, they brought a different model of um, status, I guess, for women. Women had no status. You know, originally it was just men were enfranchised to vote. uh, And then Māori men who had property were allowed to be part of that class. And then, of course, the uh, women in New Zealand, the Pākehā women, basically started to follow the temperance movement over there in britain and um you know stood up here to have yeah. the right to vote and so they got the right to vote what 1919 Yep. this month
4: yep. uh
5: maori women even though they had always had powerful positions within their own whanau and tribes and were even allowed to sign the treaty um, they didn't get the vote till about 1935 yeah. or so, yeah. sixteen years later.
1: Well, we're going to talk about that shortly because today is the uh, is the anniversary of women all over New Zealand getting the vote. We're going to talk about that shortly. But a rising star in in Hawaii um, is Debbie Paka.
5: Oh yes, Debbie. Yes, I know Debbie. Um, her and I probably were both on the same. Um, same platform of fighting against um, seabed mining and all that stuff along the west coast that's how I sort of first met Debbie and she was fighting trans Trans. Uh, gosh I can't even think of the name of the company, Trans-Tasman or something uh, who were trying to get a license down that west coast there so um, yeah she's she's been uh, a formidable leader of her people I think she's um, done a lot in the community and uh, yeah I like Debbie she's
1: Hmm. And, and and to go with that, of course, uh, they launched a petition this week online during COVID-19 lockdown. Should our official name New Zealand become Aotearoa? <laughs> yeah,
5: well, that was interesting. I was down south, uh, you know, I spoke to before um, at Renwick, and I read the editorials there and people getting really upset that TV 1 is using the word Aotearoa and then TV 2 and they were advising people please go to Prime and not support those channels so that was fascinating
1: Well, <laughs> I've, um, I've, if you get up early in the morning on Prime you can see, uh, you can see uh, all the wayatas oh, during the kids' cartoons so um, it's, it's been an interesting week with Maori Language Week so you do support the petition, have you signed it yet?
5: I haven't even seen the pictures. I, I, I try really hard to stay off because uh, I've just come back from the South Island. I got locked down there, which was great because um, my daughter, um, we just moved her into a house down there. So, um, you know, a house that my husband built. So he's. we've got plans to go back down there. But, um, yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> Any, your, oh. your family has ancestral links to the South Island.
5: Yes, my grandmother and great-grandmother, they... Um, they were part of the uh, descendants, I guess, of those who migrated from Raglan, the Ngati and Ngati Toa, people who travelled from the Tainui Waka down there to the South Island and uh, managed to be given land at Durval Island. I mean, there was skirmishes and fights in those times of claiming territory. Um, and intermarriage, of course, between Ngati Kui and Ngati Koata and people who were already there. So um, my my grandmother was born down there, and she married my grandfather up this end, so spent most of her life in Raglan, although she was always mobile. She was always going down to Nelson at least once a year to keep ties, you know, the links alive between the family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mobility wasn't a problem. You know, Māori people travelled all over the place. Yeah.
1: yeah no, no, of, of course, uh, they they still do, and you, can, you hear these stories, and it's great that... Um, they do because uh, we need these people, Maori, Pākehā, etc etc to uh, give the jab to um, people, have you had the jab yet?
5: (laughs) No I haven't I haven't had the jab, I'm considered one of those, what do they call them? Um, uh, You You hesitate um, over the age and all that Mm -hmm. stuff but I'm also one of those people who had experiences earlier in life with doctors with immunisation of my children and stuff, Mm -hmm. so I did a lot of reading on the immune system and what we were born with. And I can recall when I was young, the public health nurse used to come around with these big needles and want to give us diphtheria and all these things. My mother would tell tell us to run away into the bush. And so we never got those jabs. So, (laughs) you know, I mean-
1: You've got the spirit of Eva Ricard in you, all right.
5: (laughs) Well, uh, you know, I mean, I I question things. It's not that I, I, you know, I think it's great. I've looked at this, how they've done the vaccine and that that's fine. But I also am not hearing anything at all about, you know, for people who haven't been vaccinated, what is your backstop while you are waiting? And and nobody's talking about the immune system and the feeding of your body to actually make yourself strong enough to prevent things, because we do. I mean, I had measles as a child. Yes, so did I. It was normal. It was normal. Everybody, all the kids got measles who've been coughed? chickenpox. I never got chickenpox, but a lot of kids did. And we recovered and it was you know, you were your own doctors. Mm-hmm. It was a different time. And then vaccines have become really the prominent go to uh, in this modern age, I guess, since the nineteen fifties or more, since smallpox. Mm-hmm. It's, it's suggested.
0: it's suggested, Angelina, yeah. that Maori are particularly susceptible to these diseases that originate elsewhere. Is it possible that in coming with isolated landings around our coast of Māori waka, that Māori being out of contact even with their own kind often, other iwi might lie across a mountain range and rarely be contact between them, might they have benefited from that isolation and been in a way untroubled by sicknesses of the kind that go from one to another?
5: I think i think one of the things is that people have forgotten that there's a natural cycle of life, you know, that you are born, you know, if you're born, then you're going to die <laughs> um, at some point in time, whether it's by illness, accident, whatever. And so I suppose your philosophy was well, if someone's sick, they've either done something or maybe we can fix this. So they had this medicine chest up there. And my dad was one of those. He wouldn't go to a doctor until really late in his life, probably the last year of his life. Or Maybe the last three years, I think he first went to a doctor, but he um, he went to the bush if he was ever sick. If it was broken bones, if it was you know coughs, lungs, chest, um, anything like that, asthma, um, he would be able to brew up something, give it to you, and, and that was that, and that was the remedy. So this medicinal chest that's at our back door is ignored because we um, you know we don't try to strengthen our own lungs and everything else because uh, it's not talked about, you know.
1: It, it, it it's brilliant. On political means, will you be standing for Parliament again?
5: (laughs) Oh, look, things have to come to an end. You have to realise. I mean, I'm quite impressed with Nanaya and what she's doing. I think she's doing a good job.
1: So you agree with three waters?
5: Um, I, I think it's a good idea because, I mean, I've lived with, what, nearly 50 years with the Waikata District Council. Well, it wasn't their problem, Raglan County Council. Who have you know? First of all, that oxidation ponds, and they've just put wastewater straight into the ocean where people swim. So all the tourists go swimming, and all of Regan's rubbish. And then that's been that went on until about 2004. We kept we went to the environment court. We never won the court cases, but we did get um, standards raised where they had to treat the stuff first, and then they had to move it off the tannifer hole. And you know, there's a whole lot of background to that stuff. And and it's got to the stage now where the township itself is actually supporting Maori efforts to actually look at land-based solutions because you get trees that can pump up to 30,000 litres of water, you know, like an avocado tree or some of these things. So you could actually make money out of growing trees instead of putting the so-called wastewater into the streams or into the rivers or into the sea where other things grow. You know, the marine life has got enough to cope with without coping with all of our waste.
1: So we could see you standing for regional council or district council just (laughs) just to make some of these other politicians honest.
5: Well, just to have some debates on the platform, I'm not that keen to be going into political life at the moment. Uh, I've l- watched my friend uh, Tim Shadbolt, who in his former years was very vocal and, uh, you know, out there on the front line, but I think he's near in retirement.
1: Is he, is he ill? Because I saw him on television the other he's night. Not is- that,
5: he's not that well, because he did come up to the Springboks. That's when I saw him. He came up to the Springboks yep. um, reunion and, in Hamilton. And, and he didn't look that well. But he, he did remember my dad, yeah. and you know.
1: Is he s- uh, showing signs of Alzheimer's? or?
5: No, he, his memory was fine. I mean, he, we talked about, you know, my dad and going off to Awhetu to another yep. land occupation where he took me out in his truck and he tried to take a, a yep. raft across the Manukau Harbour with supporters and it sank and, yep. you know, so we had a lot of fun. Yep. Uh, but yep. he is certainly slower than he was.
1: Yeah, yeah my, my colleague here at Free FM, uh, Fred Hayward, was also... Um, part of that, uh, because he did the radio show that day, then went off to go go to the protest. So <laughs> at at the old rugby park. So no, I I'm quite worried about uh, our, our friends at Tim, but I think it's members of his council that need to uh, give be given a shake up.
5: Well, I think, you know, I mean, as he says, you know, if the people are going to vote him in, then he's going to do the job. He's going to stay there. If they want to vote him out, well, they can vote him out. I mean, he's he's just, you
1: know. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Hey, it's it's good to catch up with you again. Mm, You too.
0: When you went to the commemoration, you must have met a lot of old friends, familiar faces. But among that group, you might have recognized someone who had the opposite point of view. Is that the case, Angelina?
5: Who had the opposite point of view? At the... at the, at the
0: Commemoration. Of those who were aligned with the Springboks wishing the tour to carry on.
5: Yeah, I don't know. I can't... Who was there? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the ones I saw were... I mean, Ming Foon was there. The race relation conciliator was there because he was delivering a speech at the museum, which I missed, unfortunately, because I'd walked down to the... Um, the rugby grounds, and uh, such a different place today. You know, they've actually got the big photos up there of the, of the Springboks, the break-in, uh, which is, yeah, we've obviously moved on. You know, they now acknowledge that history, which is great. Uh, but um, John Minto, I mean, still yes. there? He's still yep. there pushing against um, yep. apartheid um. in, you know, pa- Palestine?
1: Yep. No, John Minto was in the studio the morning of that, protest march and it was, it was this partner that I was having a chat with and uh, she's, she's, uh, she's like John and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very much so it, it is and of course do you ever catch up with your former member Marilyn Waring
5: No I haven't seen Marilyn for years I did ring her up once and I asked I was down in Archives New Zealand I said Marilyn could I look at your papers please because I was wanting to find stuff on the Raglan golf course because she of course was the MP and um, she never, ever opened those private papers. You know, you have to give permission. Yeah. And so I never did get access to look at them. But I guess in 50 years' time, you can get free access to some of those things.
1: I think you'll have to read, a, read her book.
5: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You've read it? <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've read, about, read about the book, um, what's in it and what's not on it, about Muldoon and others, but um, yeah. I know it's out there somewhere. Maybe I'll have to go searching through the library or something here in our town.
5: Yeah, well, she was the one, of course, he went and sort of called a snap election, I think. It was something to do with Marilyn, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And, and of course, lost the election.
0: There's been another... If I
5: recall right. Yep.
0: There's been another commemoration recently, and it's of the attempts to have Te Reo recognised as a language official and serving the purpose that had been denied when schools of New Zealand used to physically... Deter pu- uh, pupils from yep. speaking it.
1: And I heard an interview with Dover Samuels on RNZ about that this morning. Uh
5: huh. So and he'd probably have the same memories as me. He's yeah, no, older no. He, than me.
1: he he got he, he got punished for talking toreo in in class, and um, he wants re- he he wants some money now. Yeah,
5: yeah. Okay, he's looking for compensation. Yeah, he is. <laughs> Oh dear, no! I, you know, I, I've witnessed that uh, in my generation, and I'm not that old, you know, seventy, what seventy two. Oh, well, so, that's, that's not young...
1: that's not, that's
5: not old. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, to some people it is. No, no, but no. Anyway, anyway, um, so, so that era, we were probably the last ones, I think, and I don't think it was all teachers. I think it was just certain teachers, but we had one woman that was really nasty, and um, she strapped this young girl every day because she couldn't. String a sentence together without Maori words. She lived with a queer who, yep. who loved her, and um, you know, and she became the queer on the Marae. She never lost her language despite all the punishment. She kept her language. She certainly left school at fifteen. She wasn't going to, you mm. know, get hit every day. So she left and went and did other things. But she was the one who trained others to speak and, and Karanga on the Marae. Yep. And,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um Angelina while we're here, could you give me the Maori name for Raglan please because uh, people pr- have probably forgotten it over the years. What does Raglan and, and Taurao? Ah, uh,
5: Whangaroa. Whangaroa, it's got sort of probably a couple of meanings. One of them is the, the long harbor or the long, you know, and the other one is the, the long pursuit. Um, one of the stories is that um when the tiny waka headed out of the Manukau Heads, it was heading down, it could see this mountain in the distance, and it took such a long way to chase the mountain, I guess. Yeah. In the end, they never even landed at Whangaroa, they went past because a mist had come down, because <laughs> the tohunga had got there first, there'd been a bit of a dispute, yeah. he wanted to marry the nav- uh, Hoturua's daughter, and Hoturua said no, so he jumped off the waka and went overland yeah. and got to these mountains and named everything, and said karakias and bought the fog and so that they couldn't even find the entrances to the three harbours, so they ended up going almost to Taranaki before they turned around and came back to Kaffia.
1: Mm. You're talking about uh, Mokapuna these days, and one thing that worries me, that many of your Mokapuna and whanau are thinking of joining gangs. What do you say to these Mokapuna and other young people thinking of joining the gangs?
5: (laughs) Well, the problem with my Mokapuna is none of them are thinking of joining the gangs. But, um, but other Mokapuna priv- anyway. Very pri- they're very privileged people, um, you know, my, cho- my children and grandchildren. They're the yeah. privileged people. Because yeah, they've grown up with a different set of values and people who love them with stability, they've got a house over their you know, roof over their yeah. heads. They've never had to want for what a lot of kids need, you know.
1: I, well, I probably said that wrong, but what do you say to young now who are thinking of joining gangs?
5: Well, come and talk. Come and talk to us. There are young people that um, I know have been in gangs. There are older people who have got out of gangs. Um, Sometimes they're looking for um, somewhere to belong. And often um, a lot of them are lost. I I run a, um, once a month, uh, people come to me and say, look, we don't know where we come from and that. And so we have have a weekend wānanga where they come home and I talk to them and talk about their ancestors and take them on a walk as to where they lived and where they still have land and give them that sense of belonging. I don't know whether that would help, but it's certainly helping a lot of the ones that are uh, displaced and have been displaced since 1941,
4: mm-hmm.
5: since our since their parents left the area and never ever brought them back because they were dispossessed. So, and some of them, yep, some of the families um, belong to gangs. Some of my relations, but uh, we, you know, we treat them as normal people.
0: Your experiences, Angelina. At Raglan Primary and perhaps later in the Raglan District High School didn't put you off maintaining your interest in education and teaching. In fact, you've carried it far from Thangaroa. You moved into the city here, attending Hamilton Technical College, Hamilton Teachers College, and Waikato University. Yeah. And you've ended up with a, a law degree, and you're a, a trained teacher and also a bachelor of social sciences with first class honors and is currently completing a masters of social science is that up to date
5: oh that's first class honors to i passed that yep <laughs> and then <laughs> i decided i'd done enough learning and stuff i mean i was one of those who really didn't want to become a teacher but when i grew up you had choices and again it was very much uh whether you were female or male if you're a male at hamilton tech you did all of the trades Yes. and if you're a female, of course you had to do, you know, secretarial or something else, and then the choices for occupation was either a teacher, a nurse, or a secretary.
1: And the, and these are the troubles that our, we are going to talk about. Kate Shepherd very very shortly, that fought for when she uh, put put forward uh, woman get the vote this day in 1893. Kate Sheppard fought against that.
5: Mhm. Her That's and it. a whole lot of other women. Eh, there were some, quite a few suffragettes. That we don't hear. We see uh, Kate is probably the most well known mm-hmm. in New Zealand, but I sort of think about. It, I think there was quite a few of them that were pushing the boundaries, there yeah. trying to get hurt.
1: I think there's another lady we've got to think of, and I was at her statue unveiling, Dame Hilda Ross.
5: Yes, yeah, yeah, yep. And I mean, you know, in, in terms of Maori women we had uh, again when they uh, wanted to become members of Parliament, uh, a lot of the men, our men, had learnt to be like. Probably the British men, women have got a different role rather than the traditional role, and um, men had all the rights to say and speak and do that stuff. And so they weren't that keen to be represented by Maori women in Parliament. So we had a couple of women who had struggles there, and Mm. I think Iriaka Ratana uh, was a very good MP for us in Raglan. You know, she came up there and she helped us to sort out issues with people wrecking. Wrecking muscle beds and things Through fishing licences So she was an effective uh, yeah. MP
1: Well uh, soon after the What Kate Sheppard did On the 20th of December 1893 voting was held In the four Maori electorates At that time So there's another point of history A woman becoming the first to vote In national parliamentary elections
5: And, and, and only men Standing for those four Maori seats For a long time yeah it's interesting hey,
1: there's always time for you <laughs> Angelina. come on
5: <laughs> oh no i think I think the younger generation there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of people I think who are keen to be in the House of Parliament debating and doing that. I'm not a person who likes to sit in a seat that long. I think if I was honest with myself, I've probably stood for seats so that I could get the issues yep. out on the platform because yep. if you don't stand for political office then you don't get to debate those issues that are
1: really important
0: That's exactly what you did
1: <laughs> And and of course I think a star of the future is um, is is of course um, Scotty Morrison's um, wife yes. I, I think she could be the next parliamentary MP, she, I, Stacey I heard her earlier this morning on RNZ and um, it's been a long course in learning to reo for her too, and Scotty yes.
5: Yes. So, she's thinking of going into a political career?
1: No, well, (laughs) she she could be a star of the future.
5: Yeah, yes, of course. Oh, she is a star. I mean, I've been interviewed by her before, and she is great. She's a great interviewer, and uh, she gets to the core of the issues. And that... Mm. There are some great people out there.
1: And, of course, for Scotty, too, his uncle was the late Sir Howard Morrison, Mm. and he was one of the pioneers, too, we forget, in Maori language, too. So... Mm.
5: Yeah, the thing with uh, Scotty is so far advanced of so many people. I sometimes find it hard to understand his language because he's so advanced.
0: (laughs) That legacy, which is your mother's, it's
5: going to be great. Yeah, it needs to be
0: recorded. You think that it's adequate uh, to write a book, the existing books, or do you think that you would add to that?
5: Uh, Your mother,
0: your mother, the legacy, the struggle and strife that she went through to bring the issues against great reservations of the governments of the time, she succeeded. She went supporting other protest movements, the land marches and that. It all put Raglan Fangaroa on the map, didn't it? And it, needs it did,
5: and yet that story is to be written. I mean, we wrote a very sw- a short uh, story that we did uh, after she died. I think we had it published within uh, she died in December. We had it published by February the twelfth on the anniversary of the arrest. So we put that out there, and it sort of was a very. It was mainly um, a document that gave a brief outline of her life, and then all of her friends who had uh, walked the paths with her that she knew all contributed. So it was sort of just, a, you know, a collective effort.
1: They need uh, to make. They need to make a movie of Eva.
5: Oh my goodness! And who's going to play Eva?
0: <laughs> You're a lookalike. <laughs>
5: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, um, that'll probably happen, I suppose. You know, everybody goes looking for stories, and it's certainly a huge story. But, you know, I look at my mother, and we had a normal upbringing up until the battle for the golf course. Yep. Or maybe it wasn't a normal upbringing. You know, we were made to fundraise and do lots of things, but that's what happened, I guess, in those days. It was normal for us.
1: Are you in Raglan this afternoon or here in Roa?
5: I'm in Kirikirirua at the moment. I'm just um, packing up some more stuff to send down on a truck to Renwick to my daughter. So I'm in Hamilton (laughs) doing that and then heading back to Raglan. Mm.
0: And new Um, horizons awaiting you in the years to come down on the South Island. Angelina Nahina Greensill. It's a pleasure, hey.
1: Once COVID is over, you're going to come and pay us a visit here at 3FM.
5: I will, yeah. Give me a reminder sometime. I should give him my cell phone number, actually. Okay. Maybe you'll fly.
1: <laughs> okay, get, Mel, Mel's got his pen. Or I've, here he is. We've, we we we've, we've, we've you've, 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 got to come and meet our Maori coordinator here at Free FM Murdoch and have a chat to him too. Okay,
5: Murdoch.
1: Murdoch. What's his other
5: name?
1: We don't know. We We know. We're, all we know is Murdoch. Okay, give Mel his, um your cell phone number, then we've got a, one more guest before we do disappear for the afternoon.
5: Okay, um, so do you want it now? Yes, please. Uh, 02789 43361
1: Kia ora and thank you for joining us on Free FM this uh, Sunday afternoon here in Kirikiriroa.
4: Thank you. It's a Kira pleasure. Ra.
1: Bye bye. Haere ra. Hai. OK, let's remember this day. 128 years ago today, September 19, 1893, New Zealand Legislative Council debated the Franchise Bill supporting women getting the vote through the efforts of Kate Shepard, organising five parliamentary petitions um, turned down, rejected one after the other, by the Fifth Petition, which gathered 31,872 or one-third of the adult female population. The Electoral Act was amended, but there was opposition within the council attempting to influence Governor-General Lord Glasgow. It was the suffragettes bombarding Glasgow with um, telegrams and um, deputations. The National Council, a woman established soon after, and we'll play a song going out after Trevor's talk. Afternoon, sir.
6: Oh, good afternoon. Uh, I want to talk about something that happened uh, before lockdown and it's probably old news to people that know what I'm talk- going to talk about. I'm talking about a, a black alpaca named Geronimo. Oh yes. Now that, that was, came from Tamanui originally and it went over to the UK and four years ago it was diagnosed with um, bovine t- tuberculosis. Now that was four years ago, and it showed you the recent shots of as it is today, and it was very healthy, trotting around in a paddock of its own, healthy appetite, bright-eyed and everything, and uh, the powers that be decided to put it down. They wanted to do that earlier, but protests and uh, you know, prevented that from happening, or stay of execution, so to speak. And when it actually happened, it showed it live on television then coming in to, with police escort to drag it away into a barn, hearing it squealing away, crying out in agony and whatnot, and they put it down. I mean, it was a pet. It wasn't some sort of wild animal that had no home or anything. And I thought, protesters um, around London and right through the UK said it should have another test because... It showed no symptoms of any illness four years after it was diagnosed and they wanted to know the validity, uh, the, the sincerity of the diagnosis, I'll put it that way, whether it was correct or not. And I thought, well, why not give a bit of respect to the animal? I mean, the chap in Auckland diagnosed with Delta, did he get dragged away and put down so he wouldn't spread it around? Of course not. So they should give some sort of appreciation to animals and that and I felt a bit sorry for it really but unfortunately it's happened Yeah it has happened, gone to the great
1: alpaca stable in the sky It's three minutes to two Had a good week
6: Trevor? Oh not
1: too bad Uh, rather uneventful (laughs) (laughs) It is, we're to leave you with Shona Lang 1905 as we celebrate women's suffrage this day back in 1893 Goodbye